there's no doubt that the old politics of the two-party system is now gone and over. I don't need lectures from you or anybody on, on the Sinn Féin side of the house. We're very reluctant to kind of say what's red lines, but, but we do have to take climate seriously. There's going to be constant criticism, there's going to be a lot of disappointment, and whoever goes into government is going to be unpopular. Okay. Hello, and you're very welcome to RT News' Your Politics podcast from RT News, of course. Uh, my name is Paul Cunningham. Uh, joining me in studio today, we have RT's uh, political reporter, Tommy Meskel, and also our political guest is Nasa Harrigan of the Green Party, their finance spokesperson, among many other jobs. Um, welcome to the podcast again, Nasa. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, we're going to get down to it in one minute, but just wanted, Tommy, if you can just frame the debate. We've been hearing about the National Maternity Hospital, its proposed move to St. Vincent's, but if you can just bring us up to date on where are we currently? Well, last Tuesday week, obviously, the Cabinet agreed that they were going to pause this for two weeks' time, and then this week we've seen this sort of scrutiny from Oireachtas committees. We had Fine Gael politicians meeting with the Minister for Health. Today we had the Minister for Health in the Dáil Chamber for our debate. Um, and again, uh, Peter Boylan will be before the Oireachtas Health Committee later today. And it's all this scrutiny, I suppose, of the arrangement. And what we're seeing is that there is still a lot of concern around this. And we've seen that phrase um, clinically appropriate under the spotlight now. Uh, and people say, asking if perhaps there could be a, a better definition given as to what exactly that means. Uh, so that in the future, perhaps the, there won't be any ambiguity around that. Um, as well, though, I think there's also just general discomfort ar- around the arrangement as a whole. But then you had the Taoiseach before a committee earlier today. He was speaking to Aractus committee chairs and he was saying that, you know, in the past couple of days, he hasn't seen any explanation in his view that would explain as to why that 299 year lease um, how that could impact on the independence of the hospital. So you do have government in many ways holding strong, but you do have a lot of concern from the opposition, but also potentially uh, within government itself among backbenchers. Well, let's tease that out a little bit with Nasa Harrigan, who is obviously a member of government, but also is one of those people who have uh, concerns about it. I was watching your uh, contribution in the Doyle and you put your cards on the table. You said you didn't like the business plan or business case. Mm-hmm. You weren't certain about the price tag being associated with it. Um, but you did zone in on that issue that um, Tommy just mentioned. Um, those two words, what they might mean and if you can explain what you believe they mean, and then also how any difficulties you have with that phrase could possibly be overcome. Well, I look, I suppose the project is very complex and there's a lot in it. Um, and as, as you, you pointed out, there's a huge amount of scrutiny that I would like to do before it gets you know, signed off, including the business case, which hasn't been signed off by the department, by the way, which you know is kind of remarkable that it would come to Cabinet then. Um, but if we stick to, to that area of clinically appropriate, I think my concern, and I have been saying this for a few weeks, around the phrase clinically appropriate is not just that uh, you know, in the course of the last few weeks, when we've had the documents in front of us, I have heard numerous legal opinions and interpretations of that. So, th- so there is ambiguity within the phrase. But what I do understand around the phrase is that it places the onus and the focus of uh, you know um, service within the hospital in the sphere of the clinician. Now, in most cases, 
that is appropriate because obviously they're the experts and they know what they're doing. But in many areas of, of you know, clinical operation, we are starting to move towards a place where we recognise that there is also a requirement for rights-based care. And we see that in disability and we see that in mental health, for example. Um, and we are, we are taking action legislatively around that. So we have the Mental Health Reform Bill, which is putting the patient's rights, the patient's agreement right into the centre and the heart of legislation. When it comes to disability, we have the UNCRPD, which is the rights of people with disability and, and what they have the right to access in terms of their care. And when it comes to women's reproductive health, you know, the minister has said himself, we have a very dark history here. We do need to recognise the rights of women. And, and for example, a good example of that is something like sterilisation, for example. That that might be um, part of a clinical treatment in the case of hysterectomy, but there might be young women who want sterilisation, who at the moment struggle to get it because... You know, the tradition in this country is you don't give healthy young women sterilisation. They might want to have children. That's a judgment. And and a woman should have the right to access that through our public health system. So I I guess what I was imploring the minister to consider, and I I do think the minister is open to this, to be honest with you, um, imploring him to either remove the word clinically appropriate, clarify it in some way, or add to the term to make it a more rights-based language. The minister would say that they have explained it and the explanation is this, that this was put in not at the request of the government but to clarify what would actually take place in the new maternity hospital. In other words, it would be relating to maternity. It wasn't going to be used for other things. So that's where the clinical appropriateness comes from. Is that not clear enough for you? Well, there's a few issues with that. So first of all, um, as it was explained to us, clinically appropriate was to limit operations within the hospital to just maternity care. Now, that's fine, except that there's a der- dermatology unit that has nothing to do with maternity care going to be in this hospital as well. So that explanation it doesn't quite they work. They took over a bit of their land and exactly. they had to accommodate them. So. But, but still, it regar- the it, principle. It, yeah, no, well, it, it's contextually within in the, like it's in reference to the building. Yes. So, so therefore that, that doesn't, doesn't quite work. Um, now, what was interesting about the committee yesterday, the health committee, because obviously I sit on the health committee, um, is that the, the minister did recognise that there is an ambiguity and he offered the health committee to write to them and list the type of um, services that would be available. And, and in fairness, we have had heard over and over again that reproductive care, abortion care, sterilisation, um, uh, gender affirming surgery, all of those would be um, available. And he offered to write a, a list almost of what clinically appropriate means. Now, that is very welcome. However, that has no legal standing. And we've heard that the hospital is going to be here for 299 years. I want something attached to those legal documents that will stand up in court in 154 years, in 298 yeah. years. Well, there's two things there. One was mentioned by Rona Mahoney, the former master of the National Maternity Hospital, where she said there could be um, services in 50 years that we don't even mm-hmm. know they're available. So if you're prescriptive now, you could limit what might be provided in the hospital itself. Um, does that not seem reasonable? No, and I think that is absolutely reasonable. However, there is precedent in contractual law to say, including but not limited to these services. Or you could link it to the minister of the day um, re- reviewing it every few years. There, there are mechanisms yeah. whereby you you could future-proof the language. But to leave it so ambiguous, to be honest with you, no matter what your kind of side of this is in terms of, you know, the St. Vincent's or, or public ownership... 
I think there's a level of legal ambiguity in there that means that we probably will see this challenge in court at some later stage. Well, just when you say that there could be an addendum, that sounds rather handy. Then you don't have to go near the big, huge, whatever yeah. number of page document, just slip something in. Does that have the same legal standing in your uh, view as to the actual deal itself? Or is there a gap there? No, I think a memorandum of understanding or an addendum would have legal weight. I think correspondence between the minister and the health committee would not have the same weight. I I think, you know, there are plenty of precedent there for legal documents that have additions or addendums or, or, you know, additional work done to them. I I take that as acceptable. But but the minister's position is that because it's a tripartite partnership, he's not in a position to, to commit to that right now, but he could write to the committee I don't think that has the kind of standing legally that we need. In your first answer there, you just had a little bit of hope. You said he hasn't quite, this is, we're talking now about the Minister for Health, Stephen Mm -hmm. Donnelly, he hasn't quite closed the door on this issue of some form of addendum to clarify that expression which has caused clear concern. Do you believe that it's still possible at this late stage for some form of addendum or memorandum to be included? I do, and I'll tell you why. We paused this process for two weeks. It's not a very long time, but it was in order to scrutinise and listen to what people had to say about it. This is an achievable change. I think it would reach out to those people who um, both the minister and the Taoiseach have said maybe don't fully understand the the agreement, which I I have to say, I I don't think that that's the way we should approach it. I think that there is a lack of trust between the women of Ireland and the state and the institutions of the state. Telling them that their fears are a red herring is not helpful. This is something achievable that we could do without delaying the project um, that really would help build that that trust and build that faith. And from what I heard in the Dáil this afternoon, I think that the minister and I think other members of government um, are recognising that this would be a way to reach out and build trust. Two questions um, to bring this section to a close. What happens if those comforts are not given to you? What happens to you as a member of government if the cabinet decides on Tuesday we're going to plough ahead? Well, obviously, this doesn't come to a vote in the doll. So my options are limited. Um, and I really hope that the cabinet will consider um, whether they want to move ahead with a project where there are significant and valid concerns that could be easily addressed or at least could be addressed without delaying the project significantly. If we want to look at like the, the kind of longer discussions around that business case part, I would mm-hmm. be very happy if they gave us the time to do that. Um, but as I said, yeah, I don't have a lot of options. And Well, one of them is to say, um, if this is a, a decision of government which I can't abide and therefore I'm going to absent myself and move to the independent benches because I just can't accept this on, um, because it is so important. It's very hard for me. You know, I'm a repealer. That's why I got into politics. And um, I'm not really sure where I go from there. But it's very, very difficult. It puts me in a very difficult position. Can I ask you just one final question? Um, This is obviously, we're talking about women's reproductive rights. And within Parliament, or within the Doyle, we've got a a rather strange situation where you've got the coalition leaders, three men, and you're looking at the opposition benches, and you've got Mary Lou MacDonald, you've got Ivana Bacic, you've got um, Roisin Shortall, you've got Catherine Murphy. To what extent, just sitting back and looking at the actual debate, has that been a, an issue at all in the context of trying to reach a conclusion on this issue? I think it, it, you know, it's really important to have women at the table. 
And that's actually part of the reason that I'm not on the independent benches yet is because I think it's really important that women stay in the room even when it's incredibly difficult. And I and I do think it impacts decisions. I did allude to that in my speech today that, you know, the, 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 <laughs> the people involved in this co- this decision are the three coalition leaders, the, the Minister for Health and the Master of NMH, all of whom are men. And um, I, I think it is not necessarily good political craft um, to to not budge one iota on this issue and and plough ahead, I I don't think it looks great. Um, we're going to shift and um, focus now onto the question of Ukraine, Tommy. We've got a, a cabinet committee on Ukraine. What are they going to look at? Do we think, and where do the things currently stand? I think the main focus today is the situation around accommodation, um, and uh, we have about twenty nine thousand Ukrainian refugees who have arrived in Ireland now, uh, and there's a real pressure uh, in terms of accommodation. There has been for some weeks, but I think as we go into summer, that's going to become even more difficult. Um, there was, there is also going to be talk around this four hundred euro payment, um, how it might be administered, talk that the revenue might be involved uh, in in dishing that out. Um, and then also, of course, we have those ongoing meetings in the Department of Housing as well, trying to locate the, the different local authority venues that can be used to, to house refugees. Um, but I think, you know, we can't overstate how, how difficult it's going to be for them over the, the coming months uh, to find those medium to long term uh, solutions to house those people. Um, Nessa, you are a TD for Dublin Central mm. within your own constituency. What are you seeing? And in particular with that um, stated government objective of trying to keep two things apart. One is providing some form of assistance to people who are coming from Ukraine due to the Russian invasion. And the other hand, dealing with the housing crisis, whether it's people homeless on HAP or whatever, or first time buyers who are trying to buy homes to ensure that there's no competition between those two. I can see why politically it's important to try and, and keep a, a you know some kind of differentiation between those two things. I think it's going to be incredibly difficult, um, particularly in areas like Dublin Central. There is just huge pressure on housing. I would say as well that the stated aim of the government to you know where people have family in Ireland already that they would be able to, you know, that their extended family would be able to come here and, and live close to them. And, and, you know, that kind of extended family support for people who are fleeing war, I can only imagine, is, you know, twice, ten times more important. And and that will be doubly hard because in constituencies like mine, where you do have people from all over the world and, and we have very mixed communities and we would have, you know, populations of, uh, you know, communities of Ukrainians. Um, that's very difficult then in, in areas where, where they're already built up and urban. So, you know, I think that, they are the, the the department, the housing department is doing the right thing insofar as they are looking at it in terms of the very specific things that they can do around um, housing Ukrainians, making sure that we access every single building where it's whether it's from an institution, an institutional building that's gone, gone into, you know, uh, has been laying fallow, for example, um, whether we can bring unused building stock back into use, um, but also kind of broader things like, you know, removing the the um, cap on uh, local acquisition. So we have to remember that, whereas a lot of our housing um, interventions for the last 10 years have been very centralised through the Department of Housing, really the people on the ground are the ones who are going to have to deal with this. And that's actually local authorities. And I think what's interesting going forward is if we're, if we're genuinely going to respond so fast to so many people, and I mean, we're always all, all, already almost up at thirty thousand. Are we something in around that? Um, 
we really need local authorities to step up to the plate. And we have kind of spent the last couple of de- decades removing power from local authorities. Um, so I think that there's going to be a little bit of a power shift there and the department's going to have to start trusting local authorities when once they take that cap off acquisitions to really spend money well and spend it wisely. And do you think that um, Dublin Central is going to be able to be uh, play a, a significant role in the context of Ukrainian refugees. If we're talking about housing, usually when we hear about Dublin Centre, we hear Dublin City Centre is going to see lots of apartments and those apartments are going to be there for rent. That doesn't necessarily sound as if there's going to be opportunities for your constituency to be able to play a role because it's slap bang in the middle of Dublin where there already is a, a big crisis when it comes to housing. Yeah, well, I mean, look, and it's something that I've I've been very vocal on in the past is that um, I, I as a in a previous life being an architect, I don't like built to rent. I, I think it's substandard housing. Um, I don't see why somebody who's renting an apartment should have a smaller apartment or an apartment with different um, fire regulations, for example, or less community space. I just don't like it. I don't think it's good practice. Um, and my chief objection to, to build to rent is that, uh, you know, often it, it's all in Dublin Central. Um, and therefore, I think that is a challenge. However, there are quite a, a number of units being, you know, nearing completion um, in Dublin. There's a, a very large project um, near me in Cabra um, that, that is um, nearing completion now. So I am aware that there are units coming online. But of course, again, the the, ex- the existing need for housing is huge in Dublin Central. Like there's kids in my, in my own kids' classes in primary school where, you know, there's one or two children who are living in, in hostels always. And, and always there's a couple of kids who are living in B&Bs. And that is a hideous situation. And it, 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 I can tell you as a government TD, it'll be very, very difficult for me to explain to a, a person who has a four or seven, an eight year old living in a and b you know, how how do you balance their needs against, uh, you know, so, somebody from yeah. Ukraine? That that will be an ongoing issue. One last question. Um, and thanks very much for coming in on, on a busy day. Uh, just in relation to this division of labour between Minister Roger O'Gorman of the Green Party and also Dara Bryan and housing, some people seem to be think that the Minister of Housing is sort of stepping back and saying, well, this is Roger O'Gorman's baby when it comes to the question of accommodation for um, refugees. How do you think that's working in government? Well, what I would say is, like Roderick in fairness to him has been incredibly before Ukraine ever happened was really stepping up to the plate on direct provision now that is a very thorny and difficult issue and it'll be very hard to you know re- like unpick all of that kind of institutional stuff that we put in place um, and finding housing for people who are already in direct provision is a huge challenge so I suppose there was a kind of a, a, a knowledge base there already on the issues that are facing us um, and I'm I'm kind of I'm very proud of Roderick that he would step up to the plate like that and I do actually think um, because I'm very in favour by the way of, of local local authorities um, you know being more central to this issue I'm very in favour of the Department of Housing and the Minister you know giving over some of that power, some of that power that they took from local authorities back. I have to say, I think Roderick's very well placed to protect the rights of people who are fleeing war and to ensure that we're doing the right thing because it is a very specific challenge. Some people might want to stay if they're here for maybe a year or two years and their kids are in school. And we know so many of those those families coming are women and children and will, you know, will, will be in schools. Um, but, but some will want to return. And, and therefore, it's a much more fluid situation than just simply housing. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I think I think there's an appropriateness within that, but I, I suspect you know that it, it is genuinely a partnership. 
Nasa Harrigan, thank you very much for joining us on your politics podcast. We really appreciate it. Um, Tommy, just we're, once the Cabinet Committee is over, we expect, as you say, to deal with accommodation. But they also have a few other issues. How are they going to be able to help people coming from Ukraine when it comes to healthcare? How are they going to be able to help them with uh, education, integrating children in? There's, there's a whole plethora of issues which still face the government. And it's pressing as the numbers are continuing to climb. Maybe not at the same rate that they first expected, but they're still climbing at the same time. Yeah, and the Minister uh, for Education was before the doll as well, and we heard questions on that, you know, uh, affording school uniforms, affording books. Um, and then, of course, yeah, you have the pressure on schools themselves and how will they accommodate uh, children that are arriving there. Um, and I think, as NASA was saying, it's also fluid as well. You know, how long will they be staying for? Will they return home for a period of time? Will they return to the classroom in September after the summer? So, um, yeah, I think it's really interesting and one to watch. Yeah, and one of the other things, we're just joined by our um, political coverage editor, David Murphy. Hi, um, how are you? Uh, just, you're our money man. Um, I don't when, have much, but I'm here anyway. Well, exactly. It doesn't seem the state's going to have much either. If you look at issues that they're facing, whether obviously um, the government and all of the ministers have made it absolutely clear that it's the right thing to do to afford as much assistance to the people of Ukraine as they possibly can. But it adds up into a couple of other um, bills that they have coming down. COVID-19, that bill is still running on. We still have issues of emergencies like housing. As it currently stands, um, we're midway, sort of the beginning of the budgetary cycle, really. Where does the state stand in its finances? Because there's some pressing pressing issues coming down, not least inflation. Well, I it's an interesting question. So, I mean, obviously, Ireland has a significant national debt at the end of last year. The gross figure was 237 billion euro. I think one thing that's happening in the Irish economy is that, firstly, our economic growth is quite strong. The labour market is really strong and there's been a massive recovery in employment um, since the pandemic restrictions ended. And we've seen like the level of unemployment falling all the time. From the point of view of money coming in, it's looking quite good. We're still getting lots of money coming in from the big corporates. I guess the thing uh, economically that you'd begin to pay more attention to now is the interest rates that Ireland and other countries are going to be charged on their borrowings. So the National Treasury Management Agency, the people who borrow money on behalf of Ireland, have been doing a good job over recent years of you know, making hay while the sun shines by borrowing lots of money uh, when interest rates are low and locking in those low interest rates. For long periods of time. For long periods of time, 10, 20, 30 years. That is all, that is all very prudent. The difficult thing now is that interest rates are beginning to creep up. They were zero for Ireland to borrow money. They're now up around 2%. And that's coming at a time when the central banks are beginning to tighten up and uh, increase interest rates, which will apply everywhere. And all of that is going to feed into Ireland's economic figures. Yeah, we had the um, president of the European Central Bank, Christine Lagarde, giving this signal that interest rates are going to go up, which sounds very distant. But if you happen to be, let's take, for example, a a mortgage holder, then this has got sort of the alarm bells should start ringing. The question I'd be interested in is like, how far are those interest rates going to go? Do you believe? And what does that translate into the ordinary man and woman who's looking at paying a mortgage? Well, the interesting thing about that is that if you look back to before the financial crisis um, around 2008-2007, we saw interest rates in Europe at 4.25%. Now, no one's suggesting they're immediately going to go up to that level. However, uh, Europe and the United States 
are facing and many other uh, parts of the world are facing really, really significant uh, inflationary problems. Um, so today we saw the figures in Ireland, the central statistics said, uh, statistics office said that inflation was running at 7%. Tommy looks as if he has to run here. Tommy, if you've got to go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was running at 7%. So the interesting thing about that is that um, countries like Ireland are now going to have to try to control that. And uh, the European Central Bank has been um, putting more money into the European economy to help countries recover from the effects of the pandemic. Uh, but now that is over and the game has moved on and they're going to have to look at putting up interest rates. What they did do in the past was they moved them up slowly in increments of quarter of a percent every quarter. So you could see over the coming years, perhaps uh, Europe getting to a point where interest rates are at 2%. The European Central Bank is a target of keeping interest rates um, close to 2%. But they're currently, uh, as you can see in Ireland, 7%, much higher. And that's a that, that's a picture that's reflected right across Europe. But to put you on the spot, say if um, it goes up by quarter of a percent, what does that mean in the context of 100,000? Or like I'm trying to think of... Well, with an average mortgage, you're talking about about 30 euro added onto the mortgage each time it goes up by about quarter of 1%. Um, but the thing is that it's coming at a time when households are under much more financial pressure. For example, if we look over the past uh, 12 months, home heating oil is up 90%, electricity is up 28%, diesel is up 60%, petrol is up 50%. So the level of inflation we have now is the highest we've had for 22 years. So that's the, that's the real difficulty. And a lot of it is because of higher energy prices. And then you get what you're called second round effects. This is where, uh, for example, um, a good that you buy may not be directly affected by inflation, but transporting it into a retail environment is costing more money. And therefore, the price of the good goes up. So in other words, it goes all the way through the economy. And that becomes very difficult to control, but they are going to have to move to do something about it. So for households, it means that at a time when they're paying more for their food, when they're paying more for their energy, when they're paying more uh, to travel, they will also be faced with paying more for their mortgages. But it's worth bearing in mind that higher rates of interest are a double-edged sword in a sense that while uh, people who borrow money are uh, paying more, people who are saving also benefit. People often forget about savers and they forget about um, people who are saving for a pension. So they will benefit from higher interest rates. One last question. Um, the Taoiseach and the Taunish have talked about sort of inflation heading into next year. So I'm just wondering sort of in a couple of sentences, is there any indication that you could see as to why it would taper off? The way inflation works is Sorry, that, that wasn't really a two-sentence <laughs> two answer. But yeah, two the, way, the way inflation works is that what actually happens is that when you have a, a price increase, if something goes, for, exa for example, from uh, one euro a litre for a price of petrol to two euro a litre for a price of petrol, if it remains at two euros for more than 12 months, well, then in the 13th month, after the original price rise, the inflation level goes to zero. So while the, the rate of increase uh, may have tapered off, and that may be the case, 
uh, it doesn't mean that prices fall. It just means they stopped rising. So you could have an inflation rate of zero, but people still paying a lot more for their petrol than they did uh, a good while earlier. So it doesn't really ease the pressure on families. It just means they stopped rising, but they're at an elevated level. I'm taking an executive decision here and we're not having you on for at least another eight months unless you've got something positive to say. Um, the weather's really good. David Murphy, our political coverage editor. Thanks very much for joining us. Also, Tommy Meskell, our political reporter and our political guest today, Nasa Harrigan of the Green Party. That's all we have from your politics podcast. Thanks very much for tuning in. Talk to you next week. 